the voice of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio. Explore the ministries of the Torah and find treasures. Serving hungry spirits worldwide with a message of Yeshua HaMashiach. Solace Radio, 24 hours a day. Shalom and welcome to the Wild Ranch Ministry and welcome to part one or CD number one of the War Scroll, The Final Battle. We are going to be discussing one of the scrolls found in cave number one by the Bedouin shepherd in 1947 called the War Scroll. It's one of, the, one of seven scrolls that were found in that first cave. And I suppose the best way to, to introduce this or to get the ball rolling here is to kind of go back a little bit just a few short months ago to kind of give you the process of me doing this in the first place. As I was perusing my emails trying to catch up with them, I noticed an email from the director of the History Channel. Well, I thought it maybe it was just some sort of promotional thing for something they were they were going to do or whatever. And of course, it did indeed actually turn out to be that, I guess you might say. But the letter was personally to me, which was which is kind of a shock. I'm, uh, I guess, I suppose it was suffice to say that I'm fairly well known in the Messianic movement and the Hebrew roots arena and so forth, but not the History Channel. And so it was an it was a invitation to lend my expertise, and I'm using the words that they use, to a series of shows they were going to air called the Nostradamus Effect. It's a 12-part series in which they are going to have the last part called the War Scroll, and they wanted some of the Hebrew background to it. I asked him how in the world he heard of me. He said he didn't know me from from Adam, if you will, but his research team found me, and I'm not going to get into the details. That's not important. But what is important is that I went and did this. Now, I had read the Dead Sea Scrolls a couple of times, uh, some more than others, uh, over the years. I was fairly familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. As a matter of fact, for those of you who have heard my testimony of how I got into Hebrew and ancient Hebrew in the first place, the release of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 80s to allow other language scholars who did not have all the presuppositions and biases and organizational biases that the original ones did, which we'll cover a little bit later, they got an opportunity to see these things. And it was part of my testimony as to why I got interested in, in the Hebrew language in the first place. But nonetheless, they asked for my expertise in this. And I had to now pour myself into the details of the War Scroll, something that I only knew a little bit about before this happened. So they sent 21 questions that I had to answer and so forth. And the point is, I went there, I did it, it's done. But then when I returned, I began to investigate and research these scrolls a little bit more. Because in my research before going to to the shoot of this segment, I noticed some very fascinating things about this scroll. For it is not just an apocalyptic account of some great final battle that's going to be fought someday, because it appears to be when you're reading the scroll that... Clearly, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls saw this as a future event, some looking back now thinking that it was future in their lives at that time, meaning sometime in the upcoming years, perhaps fought against Rome, that would have occurred somewhere around 64 to 72 CE or something like that. I believe, however, they thought it was a much future event. And I'm going to discuss my reasons why as we go through the scroll, because as I begin to see the events taking place and the things prophesied, 
and the identification of the characters in this final battle, it became obvious to me that these people living at that time, somewhere between the first century B.C. and up until the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., somewhere around this period of time is when the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated. These writers of these scrolls see the future events much the same way that most of you listening to my voice see it as well. There's going to be a battle fought. It's going to involve a wilderness. It's going to involve 40 years. It's not going to be a pre-tribulation type of atmosphere, but rather in the end, the sons of darkness are going to be removed from among the sons of light. And who is going to remain but the sons of light? This began to fascinate me as I began to get into the details of this. So before we even get into the rest of the introduction, I want to make something clear. I am not saying that the war scroll or any of the Dead Sea Scrolls are inspired of God. I'm not saying that. I'm not even necessarily saying that I believe that they were right on with their prophetic understanding. But as we go through this document, which is much closer to the time of the Messiah than we live, perhaps precisely at the time of the Messiah, these people had very clear understanding based upon the prophecies of the Bible. This, these are not things drawn out of thin air. We're going to see over and over, they're going to be quoting from the Bible. They're going to understand that there is a Messiah involved in this, a great leader who's going to lead us through this. You'll start to see these things all come to the surface as we go through this incredible insight that these people had living at this time. So the bottom line is the war scroll is a prophetic interpretation of people living in the first century B.C., not having, if you will, if this dating is correct, not having the New Testament per se, but seem to be making statements that are in harmony with the New Testament and particularly the book of the Revelation, or Heed Galut. So before we get into talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, to give some of the background before we go into the War Scroll, I would like to begin with a verse in Heed Galut, or Revelation chapter twelve seventeen which I believe we're going to be able to confirm as we go through the war scroll. You're familiar with this verse. Revelation 12:17 says, and I quote, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. You all are familiar with that verse, and I believe that it's quite possible that this war scroll refers to this particular war. So let's begin with a little general background. I'm not going to go into all the details. Much of it you know, and the other parts really aren't that important uh, with respect to what we're going to be discussing here. But basically, in 1947, a young Bedouin shepherd boy by the name of Muhammad, whose nickname was the Wolf, ventured into a cave, now known, of course, as Cave Number 1, which is kind of logical, and discovered uh, the jars with seven scrolls. And so we first start out with seven. Seven, of course, shows up all over the place. So he discovers seven scrolls. And basically, this is an area, it's called Qumran. As a matter of fact, officially the place is called Kirbat Qumran, which simply means the ruins of Qumran. Kirbat, K-H-I-R-B-A-T, you'll see that quite often. And uh, basically that comes from the Hebrew word harav, which is a chet, even though it's spelled once again with a K, that's pretty typical. It's the Hebrew word, word also for a sword. But in, in its form here, harav means to destroy, waste, desert places, and so forth. And it's also the Hebrew word for a sword. 
And if you've ever been to Israel, if you've ever been around the Dead Sea, then you'll know that basically the ruins are about a mile west of the Dead Sea. And they're about three miles south of the northern shore. And they're about 13 miles east of Jerusalem. This is a very dry, desolate area. It happens to be one of the places I like to go when I visit Israel. I like the, the Negev and, and the desert places myself. And so he discovers these uh, seven scrolls. Now, these original seven scrolls were basically, number one, an incomplete Isaiah scroll, a scroll of hymns. Then, of course, we had the War Scroll, which was originally called the War of the Sons of Light with the Sons of Darkness. It, it goes by different titles, but probably the one that's most well-known is the War Scroll. Then there was also a complete copy of Isaiah. That's the one that when you go visit Israel, that's the one that you see at the museum on display there. Then there was a commentary on Habakkuk, which we will also talk about. There was called the Manual of Discipline and a scroll called the Community Rule. Now, these were basically whole scrolls uh, because what was found was a library. Over the years, as they went through the various caves, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth cave, and on and on, they they found more scrolls as, it, as they began to open up. And they found really over 800 volumes of scrolls covering over 100,000 fragments. I mean, there's just... Thousands upon thousands of, of semi-complete scrolls, semi-complete scrolls, and hundreds of thousands of fragments. Now, what's also interesting, of course, about these scrolls is that they were mostly written in Hebrew. There's some in Aramaic and there's some in Greek, but most of them are in Hebrew. So once again, we discover, even outside of the traditional rabbinic system that they have there, that there are normal, if you will, religious people speaking Hebrew. There are only some in Aramaic and some in Greek. And one of the things you run into when you get on the internet or you get the various books that are out on the Dead Sea Scrolls is the debates and discussions over several things. Number one, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls? Oh my goodness, there must be dozens of books out there on the various opinions of who wrote them. Most of them still today, even after all this time, some 60 years now, agree that it was probably the Essenes, a sectarian set of people who lived outside of Jerusalem, outside of the system, because they were near there. And because they were near there, they generally assumed that this must be the authors and writers. Some believe that it's just a group of uh, Yehudim or Jews who were fleeing the Romans in the first century. And it was just an eclectic uh, group of books in their library that when they were fleeing the Romans in order to preserve them, they hid them in these caves, only... Act, only being accidentally discovered by a Bedouin shepherd some 1900 years later. There's also scholarly debate on the timing or the dating of the scrolls. Some put it about uh, 100 years before Yeshua. Some believe it was about 100 years after Yeshua. There's only a handful, I mean a small amount, that put the date older than the 1st century B.C. There is a handful that believe it could go as far back as the 2nd century B.C., Either way, there's a couple of things that have already taken place, no matter who the authors are. And that is, Alexander the Great has already uh, conquered the known world, if you will, and sent out his four generals in order to conquer these certain areas of the world and uh, establish their kingdoms under Alexander the Great through his four generals. The Septuagint has already been put in place as well. And it appears that the temple has not been destroyed yet. 
So this is why most everybody, even if you put everybody together, somewhere between the 2nd century B.C. and the 1st century B.C., is the general dating of these scrolls. Now, from about from the time they were discovered, I'm not going to go through the boring details of all the hands that interchanged and so forth and how they ended up getting to this Hebrew University professor and the head of the Syrian Orthodox Monastery. But nonetheless, from the late 40s and early 50s, all the way up until basically the mid to late 80s, these scrolls were in the hands of just a small handful of scholars. And they happened to represent the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church was held on to these things for 40 years and did not let anybody else see them. And it was only in the last 20 years that other language scholars have had an opportunity to see the scrolls as well. And, of course, it was around 1991 that you started seeing books uh, publishing the Dead Sea Scrolls in English. Still, even today... You can't, not any old Tom, Dick, and Shlomo, as I say, can see the scrolls. There's there's only about 65 or 70 language scholars over the years who have had access, period, to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can get you can get a hold of them and get facsimiles of certain fragments and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, you and I cannot go see outside of them being on display in Chicago or Portland or Seattle, wherever they've been, cannot just get a hold of them and look at them ourselves. So nonetheless, most of the early interpretations of these texts were released from a Dom- Dominican priest and placed in a Catholic setting. And so everything at first seemed to be have a bent toward that. The authorship of the scrolls, as I said earlier, has traditionally been assigned to sectarian groups known as Essenes, and these people are inferred uh, based upon also information provided by Josephus and, and Pliny the Elder and, Elder and Philo and so forth. Uh, information comes from them that also lists the Essenes as the authors of these scrolls. And, of course, this would have been from someone centuries ago, especially Josephus, well, all these characters, And then now we see, we have them discovered in a cave, untouched for for, for 2,000 years. And the copies of the manuscripts from the scriptures, of which we have 95%, 95% of our Bible is in these Dead Sea Scrolls. And Isaiah being the dominant one, but 95% of the Bible is there. The book of Esther is the only one that's not there. Once again, they're mostly in Hebrew, some Aramaic, and some Greek. And up until 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament, was around 1008 CE, or AD, whatever you prefer to call it. That was the oldest one we have. So now, for from some 60 years now, we've had the scriptures maintained in a cave, untouched, uh, that are a thousand years older, back to the time of Yeshua, than we currently had, and now we've been able to match the accuracy, the, 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 the tremendous accuracy of these things, of these copies of the Bible that have been maintained. All the debates and all the controversy, as you can probably guess, is not around the copies of our Bible being maintained, but rather the sectarian scrolls that were found, the community rule, the copper scroll, and things like this. And so they're the ones that are getting all the controversy. And so this is one of the ones that we're going to talk about because this war scroll is sectarian. Now, basically, the Dead Sea Scrolls can be divided up into three categories, if you will. That would be biblical text that we just discussed. Then a section that would cover what we would 
call apocryphal or pseudepigraphical, and that basically those are just fancy words that mean books that uh, appear uh, to be biblical, but their authorship is very spurious at best, and some of these things are included in the Catholic uh, canon and so on and so forth, and some of you are familiar with. But our focus is going to be on the War Scroll, which is sectarian. It's the third group, which is sectarian. That's the one that provides all the interest and a lot of the controversy. So we're going to focus on those, and as we address the more applicable parts of the scroll, we will seek further understanding of the writers as we consult other scrolls and fragments that pertain to our context. So I'm not just going to be covering the war scroll, because a lot of things that are written about in the war scroll, their definitions are in other sectarian scrolls and fragments. And so we're going to be kind of putting these things together because some things are already written in other places as far as their definitions is concerned. It's my opinion, and along with many others, that this scroll is the sectarian group's interpretation of biblical text. And so you're going to see constant quotes from the Bible in this scroll. So in other words, what we're going to be reading is not unlike just reading anybody's book on prophecy today. It's their interpretation of biblical text. The major difference, of course, is going to be these guys lived a hundred years before Yeshua. And and their understanding of biblical text even before the New Testament was produced. Now, there are several particular biblical texts that the War Scroll is going to be constantly referring to, and some of these other fragments as well. And that's primarily going to be Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12, Isaiah 10 and 11, Isaiah 23 and 24, and also Psalm 83, all the characters who are identified as the sons of darkness in the War Scroll happen to be all the characters listed in Psalm 83. We'll talk about that in more detail when we get to it. But in particular, Isaiah is focused on a lot in the quotations. I believe this is particularly true because it's the book of Isaiah that was found in its greatest completeness. Like I said, it's on display in Israel. Many of you have seen it on tours and so forth. And so the Isaiah scroll seems to be the one that's also the focus of where a lot of these prophecies were they're drawing from as well. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to see comments referring to what we read in the book of Revelation as well. So once again, when we read the book of Revelation, obviously we are reading the account of the gathering of the exiles, the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, the name of the book is Hit Galut in Hebrew. It's translated into Greek as Apocalypsis and into uh, is English as the Revelation. But the very first word of the book of Revelation, when you read it in Hebrew, is Hit Galut, which is really the word for exiles or the diaspora or the scattering and so forth, Galuts. And so I'm going to propose to you that the book of Revelation is all about the gathering of the exiles because that is ostensibly Yeshua's body. And that's why the the book begins with the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, not the revelation of the Antichrist or the beast or the or these terrible things that are going to happen, but rather it begins with the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. And I believe that it is a book that shows us how, when, and where he's going to gather his people scattered throughout all the world in the latter days. And one more thing that we'll be also discussing when we go through this is that 
It is a prophetic look, I believe, at what is we have called the greater exodus, or another exodus going to happen. For the authors of the sectarian scrolls clearly understood that God will come, he will reap final justice when the teacher of righteousness takes the sons of light into the wilderness to await him. And a lot of these characters that are part of the sons of darkness are all who Israel had to face when they were exiting Egypt in the first place. And so I believe as we will see that these sectarian writers draw clear connections to the first exodus, to Daniel, to some of the Psalms and our praises and hymns and so forth, to Isaiah, and to the book of the Revelation. Why? Because the book of Revelation and Isaiah are basically joined at the hip. You may notice the relationship between the two. Once again, Isaiah seems to be a dominant uh, uh, scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and its connection with the book of Revelation. For example, both books begin with a vision of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we have Isaiah having this vision of God on the throne in the temple and so forth. And of course, in Revelation chapter 4, we have the vision in a temple and someone on a throne as well. Yeshua in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, quotes from Isaiah and then it of course, as you well know, leaves off the last line, which is prophetic of what's going to happen in the end. Uh, Isaiah is the only Old Testament book that repeats the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, uh, six to seven times. We read in the book of Isaiah that the end is revealed right out of the beginning. Isaiah is, is not unique in that because others allude to it, but Isaiah is the one that comes right out with it several times as if showing us clearly that if you want to know what's going on in the end, you go back to the beginning. As a matter of fact, he says it seven times. Happens to be that Isaiah, in chapter 34, refers to all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together like a scroll, and all the hosts fall down. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 6, it says, And the stars of heaven fell into earth, even as a fig caster their untimely figs, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Both mention these scrolls. In Revelation chapter 5 and 6, speak of opening a scroll and then followed by war. If you read Revelation 5, you read Revelation chapter 6, then you have the first horse of the apocalypse coming. And so we have a scroll mentioned that's followed by war. And the same is true in Isaiah. Of all the Old Testament books, and you can do this research yourself, Isaiah mentions light more than all the other Old Testament books. Yes, including Rashid or Genesis. Isaiah mentions light more than all the other Old Testament books. Now, when we go to the New Testament, it's Yohanan, or John, of course, who wrote the book of the Revelation, who mentions light and darkness in his gospel and his epistles more than any other writer. Yohanan is the one that takes you back to the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. Of course, he's also the one that wrote the book of Revelation. I bring this up because this scroll, this war scroll, used to be called the war of the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And that seems to be directly connected to the book of Isaiah and also the Gospels, uh, John's Gospel, his epistles, and the book of Revelation, which he wrote as well. As I mentioned earlier, these scrolls and fragments are not available for just anybody to walk up and go, hey, can I look at it too? It's just not open for anybody to walk up and look at And so what we're relying primarily on is facsimiles of these fragments and scrolls and translations. There happens to be a couple people that I have a lot of trust in when it comes to the translations. 
And it's these two men that I'm going to rely on their translations of this into the Hebrew text. And as I study the Hebrew text, I will bring forth the Hebrew words that are behind these English words when it's appropriate. But the two that I respect most is Gezevermi. Gezevermi. Gezevermi is about 85 years old now. And the other one is James Charlesworth. Those, these are very well-known Dead Sea Scroll scholars who have put out a lot of books, and you can get them in any bookstore. Now, although we are going to read directly out of the scroll, and we're going to see these things and take them back to the scriptures together, there are some comments made by some of these scholars that are very interesting, especially seeing that virtually none of them is what we would call Messianic or Hebrew roots. So we can forget that. And we have basically the biases of those who are Orthodox, Jewish. We have the bias of those who are strictly coming from a Catholic or a traditional Christian point of view. We have the biases of those who come from a secular point of view. They are not quote-unquote religious at all. And some of the commentaries are very provocative. One of the ones that I have chosen to read is indeed from Gaze of Verme. It's from his book called The Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English. And I'm only reading this to you because of some of the terminology that these guys who have poured over these documents for some 60 years now, especially Gaze of Verme, who've had the opportunity to read these same things over and over and over again. It's kind of like counseling. They begin to see patterns throughout these documents. And some of the patterns they see over and over is that these people, number one, expected a Messiah. They talk over and over and over about a teacher of righteousness and a wicked priest. There's all kinds of views from all kinds of positions on who the teacher of righteousness is and who the wicked priest is. Some believe that the teacher of righteousness is Yeshua, they would say Jesus, and the wicked priest of all people is Paul. I'm going to submit to you that as you go over the interpretations of this text, most of the beliefs of the wicked priest believe that he was Paul. Yes, Paul the Apostle. There are some differences. Some people believe the teacher of righteousness was John the Baptist and the wicked priest was Paul. And there are some, this is the one I happen to agree with, that the teacher of righteousness is Yeshua, foreseen Yeshua, and the wicked priest being an anti-Messiah or, as I believe, the restrainer. I believe that he's the restrainer of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which we covered in our Tares Among the Wheat series. Now, with that in mind, I would like to quote something with another theme that runs through the Dead Sea Scrolls as revealed and interpreted and understood by Gaze of Verme, and that is of a new or even a renewed covenant. And I'm going to quote from his book called The Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English. Again, in the days of Moses, the Israelites were declared a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God's special possession on condition that they obeyed the Torah, the divine teaching of the religious, moral, social, and ritual precepts recorded in the Pentateuch from Exodus 20 and repeated in the farewell discourse addressed by Moses to his people in the book of Deuteronomy. I might also add, this is me talking now, I might also add that before this, Geza goes through a series of this this covenant that began all things in the beginning that he keeps that the father keeps renewing to every generation because they depart from it and he renews it in the next generation. He sees this theme by the Essenes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I continue. After the conquest of Canaan and the distribution of the land to the tribes, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the covenant, was renewed by jo- Joshua and the Israelites reasserted their commitment to the heavenly helper, if you will. From then on, the biblical story is one of continuous unfaithfulness to the covenant. 
But God was not to be thwarted by human unworthiness and ingratitude, and for the sake of the handful of just men appearing in every generation, he allowed the validity of the of the covenant to endure. Why is he saying this? Because the Essenes, especially these writers in the War Scroll, are going to talk about those who violate the covenant. And in every generation, as I have been talking about for years, that God is cyclical. He teaches cyclically. He's not a linear Darwinistic God. And that every generation, he's renewing this to everyone because they break it. And he woos them back into his covenant. And so Geza is simply saying that he recognizes this theme in the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He goes on to say, though he punished the sinful and rebellious, he spared the remnant because of their fidelity, fidelity to it. From time to time, saintly leaders of the Jewish people, King David, King Josiah, Ezra the priest, uh, so on and so forth, persuaded them to remember their covenant with God with solemn vows of repentance and national rededication. But the promises were usually short-lived. This is true. This would no doubt account for the development of an idea in the 6th century B.C. of a new covenant founded not so much on undertakings entered into by the community as on the inner transformation of every individual Jew for whom the will of God was to become, as it were, second nature. Now, I'm going to say that again. The new covenant that's being talked about by these Essenes founded not so much on undertakings entered into by the community as on inner transformation of every individual Jew. Inner transformation is involved in this new covenant. And then he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31 that we're all familiar with. And then he goes on to say, It was the same covenant ideology that served as the foundation of the Qumran community's basic beliefs. The Essenes not only considered themselves to be the remnant of their time, but the remnant of all time, the final remnant. In the age of wrath, while God was making ready to annihilate the wicked, their founders had repented. They had become converts of Israel. As a reward for their conversion, the teacher of righteousness, a theme throughout all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, had been sent to establish for them a new covenant, which was to be the sole valid form of eternal, eternal alliance between God and Israel. Consequently, their paramount aim was to pledge themselves to observe its precepts in absolute faithfulness. Convinced that they belonged to a community which alone interpreted the Holy Scriptures correctly, theirs was the last interpretation of the Torah. And they devoted their exile in the wilderness to the study of the Bible. Their intention was to do all according to had been revealed from age to age as the prophets had revealed by His Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop there because he sees very clearly that these were people in the wilderness and they thought they were the final generation and the final remnant. Why? Because it's these final things in the end of days seem to take place when they're exiled in the wilderness, going through the wilderness experience, just like it was in the first exodus. And of course, we know since it's been 2,000 years, since these scrolls have been written, that they erroneously thought that they were the last generation or the last or final remnant. Now, the war score is divided up into 12 or 13 sections, depending upon how you want to look at it. So I'm going to kind of divide it up in the same way the war score is divided up. We begin with the introduction, which I just went through, and hopefully we're done with that. Then we will go through the proclamation of war, which is basically going to be the first column. This scroll is has 19 columns, and there are certain lines in every one of these columns. Obviously, 
we're not going to go through every line of every verse because there would be 600 or 700 verses here to deal with. But we are going to go through the gist, to give you the gist of what this war scroll is all about. So we begin with the opening column of the proclamation of war. Then we have the reorganization of the temple worship, one of the evidences of the reason why I believe this is a apocalyptic kind of view of something as a future war is because all 12 tribes are back in the land. There is leaders representing each one of the tribes as they go to battle, and they seem to all be in the wilderness of the peoples. And so all 12 tribes are there, and so there's a there's some detailed account of how the battle is going to be fought and the temple worship, and the priests and so forth uh, that go with it. Then we have a section called the program of the 40-year war. This is a 40-year war, just like they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Then we have a section that deals with the trumpets. The priests are blowing trumpets all through these battles, and especially the final battle. A section on the standards or banners that they carry. So you're going to see something very familiar to Numbers chapter 1 through Numbers chapter 10 as well in the organization of the camps and so forth as they went forth from one place to the next. Happens to be the same organization that they're going to have in these final battles as well. Then there is a column on the war formations and the instruments they're going to use and how the soldiers actually line up for battle. Then you have a a column on the age of the soldiers, which you'll find quite fascinating, as most of the people on the front lines are 40 years old and over. And all the people taking care of the mundane details in the background are all 25 to 30 years old. So it's all the old guys that are out actually fighting the war. Some of you may find that disturbing. But then there's a column on the camp, how the camp is arranged. Then one on the duties of the priests and Levites. Then they get into the addresses and prayers of the battle liturgy and the thanksgiving songs. There's two columns that's going to deal with something that looks very much like the Psalms. It's going to be praise and adoration for God being the victor because in this final battle, the seventh battle, it's God who intervenes. Because basically there's going to be seven battles that are going to be fought in this 40-year period, which we'll talk about in more detail later. Three are won by the sons of light. Three are won by the sons of darkness. And then there will be a final battle in which will not be fought. God will actually intervene, just like the testimony of the book of Revelation that we ostensibly call Armageddon. God will intervene in the final battle. And then final, the, finally, the last column deals with the, with the, some of the details about the actual battle against the Katim. And we're going to define all these terms as we go. Now, let me remind you, there's one more thing to mention, and we'll probably bring it up uh, other times as well. Now and then, we're going to run across a letter or a group of letters, which are very spurious. They're, they're, in other words, it's not very clearly what they, clear what they are. And then sometimes they have two of the letters, and then there's a blank spot. Now, there's, an, there's a, a fancy term for that. It's called lacuna, lacuna, which is L-A-C-U-N-A. That's just a fancy grammatical term for there's nothing written there. There's a blank spot there. In other words, you're going along with the context of the scroll. And since it's many times torn and worn, I mean, these things are old. They're 2,000 years old. And so, therefore, there's going to be some sections that were really blurred and some huge sections, that chunks of it that are out. And so we have the start of the word and so forth. And I will bring these up uh, now and then as we go through it. Most of these fragments and scrolls have been poured through quite extensively in the last 60 years plus And so they've come to understand through other fragments, 
probably uh, and you know like a duplicate kind of statement in in some areas where these uh, where it reveals what these things actually uh, said in them. So let's begin with the War Scroll once again, also called the War of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. We're going to start with column one. This is the opening part of the scroll. And I'm going to propose to you that this is the most important part because it identifies who all the characters are before we get into any, any of this priestly liturgy and so forth, which we're not going to get into in much detail because we don't have time to do that. I just want to bring out some of the most important and provocative parts of this scroll. The War Scroll, column one begins, and I quote, For the instructor, the rule of the war, the first attack of the sons of light shall be undertaken against the forces of the sons of darkness, the army of Belial, the troops of Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, the Amalekites, Philistia, and the troops of the Katim of Ashur. Supporting them are those who have violated the covenant. Now keep in mind that I'm looking at the actual Hebrew translation. So I'm looking at the Hebrew texts, but I'm not looking at the actual scroll or even a facsimile of the actual scroll itself, but rather the Hebrew text as translated by these two men that I respect. And so between the two, this is basically the translation uh, by everyone that's translated this scroll as to what it says in the opening column. So this is the first couple of lines of the opening column. Now, one of the first things that we're going to do is we're going to undertake the defining according to the War Scroll and many of the other texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to first begin with the Sons of Darkness, and then we're going to go into the Sons of Light and to understand who they were. Now, this is basically equivalent to the Sons of Light slash Teacher of Righteousness, Moritz Sadiq, and the Wicked Priest, Sons of Darkness. Although... The teacher of righteousness and the wicked priest are not mentioned in the war scroll. They are synonymous with the sons of light and the sons of darkness as if they are the ones who represent them. And there's significant theme elsewhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls. For example, the teacher of righteousness is mentioned over all of the other sectarian scrolls that were found. And the teacher of righteousness, the Morate Sadiq, according to the Damascus, Damascus document, for example, in column 1, line 11 and 12, says that he is a teacher of righteousness raised up to guide the sons of light in the way of his heart, that is the Father, God, to keep them from departing from the way. So whoever this teacher of righteousness is, he's raised up by the Father to guide the sons of light to keep them from departing from the way. And of course, this is one of the titles of the Messiah when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are all very clear themes throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we're going to take the time to identify these characters in the beginning of this series. We have Belial, the army of Belial, which I contend is a general term for the leader of all the rest. He is the one that's going to, according to a field, remember the field is the world, Yeshua tells this in the parable, he's the one, if you will, that is there to keep the wheat from producing. And he has a lot of these people in his harmony, the, the sons of darkness, identified by the same characters that are in Psalm 83, for example. So I thought it would behoove us to read a good portion of the 83rd Psalm. It's not very long. We'll read a portion of it because these characters here are the same characters that are in the War Scroll. 
Psalm 83, Mismore 83, verse 1. Keep not your silence, O God, and hold not your peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may no more be in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent, and they are confederate against you. Now, one of the things I also want to mention that we're going to see as we go through, especially the opening statements and the final statements of the War Scroll, and that is, historically, a lot of these things match what we understand historically. In other words, there's going to be these battles. There's also going to be a constant conflict throughout the ages or throughout history between what's called the Katim, which we'll identify here a little bit later, and the sons of the east and Edom and Moab and so forth, and particularly the kings of the north, which we'll also talk about later. And so during this these historical times before the final battle, traditionally these people that are the enemies of Israel, battle each other. We know that goes on in the Middle East all the time. We've got the Sunnis battling the Shia and so forth, and, and they fight with each other until they gather together to fight a common enemy. We know this happened in the days of Yeshua as well, that the house of Hillel was at constant battle with the house of Shammai, i.e. also the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, until it came to a common enemy. And so when it came to the crucifixion of Yeshua... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the multitudes all got together to stand against Yeshua and to crucify him. Now, obviously, not everybody, but collectively, we're seeing the same picture here. And so what's going to happen in the end of days, as we see in the War Scroll, is that the those of Katim are going to who traditionally fight against the kings of the north, and we'll identify that a little bit later. But when it comes to this final battle, they will all come together as one to fight against the sons of light. And so we have the same thing going on here in Psalm 83. Starting in verse 6, it says, The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarines, Gebal, Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also is joined with them. Now remember, it's the Katim of Ashur, we'll talk about that later, that have helped the children of Lot. And it goes on to say, because of what they have done, because of this confederation that they make here to stand against Israel, to blot their name out, to cut them off from being a nation, they are going there's going to be retribution paid back by them from God, and he will make them like stubble before the wind, as it goes on to say. Now, as you see, we also have Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the sons of the east. We're going to talk about these later. And the bands of Katim, which I believe represent the west as best represented by Rome and Greece. And we're going to discuss this in detail. Now, as I said, let's begin by giving the background of the sons of darkness. I'm reading from one of the scrolls called The Coming of Melchizedek. Yes, one of the scrolls of the Dead Sea Scrolls is called The Coming of Melchizedek. It's identified as 11Q13, which is the number applied to it, meaning basically it was found in cave number 11. In the first two columns, so you can read this yourself, and I quote, And concerning what scripture says, In this year of Jubilee you shall return, every one of you, to your property, a reference to Leviticus 25, and what is also written, and this is the manner of the remission, every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community because God's remission has been proclaimed, a reference to Deuteronomy 15. And I go on quoting, 
The interpretation is that it applies to the last days and concerns the captives. Just as Isaiah said, to proclaim the jubilee to the captives. Referring to Isaiah 61. Just as, and then there's a lacuna there. Remember what that is? That means there's a gap there. And from the inheritance of Melchizedek, who will return to them what is rightfully theirs. He will proclaim to them the jubilee thereby releasing from them the debt of all their sins. He shall proclaim this decree in the first week of the Jubilee period that follows nine Jubilee periods. Now, once again, we're not here to extrapolate all the meaning of this. I'm just trying to show you that clearly in this document called the coming of Melchizedek, there is a Melchizedek character after the pattern of the year of Shemitah, or the year of released, who will come during the Jubilee to release these sons of light from the debt of all their sins in the same way the Jubilee releases, you know, everybody back to the way it was. And then it goes on to say, then the day of atonement shall follow after the 10th Jubilee period when he shall atone for all the sons of light and the people who are predestined to Melchizedek. For this is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favor. And by his might he will judge God's holy ones and so establish a righteous kingdom. As it is written about him in the songs of David, a godlike being has taken his place in the council of God in the midst of divine beings he holds judgment. Now notice the terminology that's used here. They clearly see one coming after the order or pattern, whatever word you want to use, of Melchizedek. And he will set the people free from their sins. Also, in column four of the coming of Melchizedek, it says, and I quote, based upon Psalm 82, Scripture also says about him, over it take your seat in the highest heaven, a divine being will judge the peoples. Now, obviously, they're not necessarily saying that Yeshua is God in the flesh here, or this Messiah, this coming is God in the flesh, but whoever this Melchizedek type character is, he will be divine like being. In other words, they understand that there's more about this than just being another man. That's the important point that I want to bring up here. So then we go on to column 11 and 12, where it says, once again, and I quote, Scripture also says about him, that is this one after the order of Melchizedek, Concerning what scripture says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality with the wicked? The interpretation applies to Belial and the spirits predestined to him because all of them have rebelled, turning from God's precepts, that's Chukim, and so becoming utterly wicked. So now Belial is directly applied to those who have rebelled and turned from God's precepts. Once again, in this case here, we're talking about kuka or chukim, becoming utterly wicked. So turning from God's precepts, becoming utterly wicked, and Belial are all associated with each other. Going on to this same scroll, the coming of Melchizedek, column 15 and 16, it says, This is that which all the divine beings, literally Benai El, sons of God, the visitation is the day of salvation that he has decreed through Isaiah the prophet concerning all the captives. Inasmuch as scripture says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your divine being reigns. So the writers of the scrolls are directly associating the day of salvation 
with the messenger who announces peace and brings gospel. That's what good news is. And announces salvation to Zion, saying, your divine being reigns. Now, that just happens to be the language that they're using here. Your divine being reigns. Let's go on with this same scroll. Now it goes on to talk about the interpretation of what we just read. Here's what it says. The mountains are the prophets, they who were sent to proclaim God's truth and to prophesy to all Israel. The messenger is the anointed of the spirit of whom Daniel spoke after the 62 weeks and anointed shall be cut off. So the writers of these scrolls clearly saw the personages talked about in Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 as the same messenger who proclaims the good news, proclaims the gospel, the anointed of the Spirit, etc. And then it goes on to say, the messenger who brings good news, who announces salvation, is the one of whom it is written, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So, the one in Daniel chapter 9, the anointed of the Spirit, who is to become to cut off, the one who proclaims the day of salvation, the one who is a divine being, who comes to proclaim the good news, is also the one spoken of in Isaiah 61. When Isaiah says, The Spirit of Yahweh Elohim is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach the good news unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. These sectarian Jews clearly see in the first century before Yeshua comes on the scene that all these are one in the same character and somehow associated with Melchizedek. Then column 20 goes on to say as it interprets who this messenger is in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 it says this and I quote this scripture's interpretation he is to instruct them about all the periods of history for eternity and in the statutes of the truth, dominion that passes from Belial and returns to the sons of light by the judgment of God, just as it is written concerning him who says to Zion, once again, your divine being reigns. Once again, a reference to Isaiah 52, 7. Going on in column 21 in the, in the scroll called the coming of Melchizedek. It says, Zion is the congregation of all the sons of righteousness who uphold the covenant and turn from walking in the way of the people. Your divine being is Melchizedek, who will deliver them from the power of Belial concerning what scripture says, then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud in the seventh month. So according to the writers, when are those who are the sons of righteousness, the congregation, Zion, going to be delivered from the power of Belial when the trumpet is sounded loud in the seventh month, Leviticus 25, 9. And also, these sons of light, or Zion, the congregation of the sons of righteousness, are those who not only uphold the covenant, but turn from walking in the way of the people. Now, in our continuing quest to identify who the sons of darkness are, we also have a fragment from K4. It's called 4Q181. And this is a fragment that's very similar to what's called the community rule, something we're going to read from a little bit later. And it basically describes the destinies of the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And so, in this one, the wicked and the holy, I quote, 
for guilt with the congregation of his people, for it was wallowed in the sin of the sons of men, and it was appointed for great judgments and evil diseases in the flesh, according to the mighty deeds of God in accordance with their wickedness, each a man according to his lot or share which he has cast for eternal life. So they clearly see the direct correlation between the wicked, those who are wicked, who have wallowed in the sins of the Son of Men, that great judgments and evil diseases in the flesh come unto them. And we have another scroll called the Thanksgiving Hymns. Uh, subsequently uh, given the uh, identification of 1QH, 1Q36, 4Q427-32, and I quote from the Thanksgiving hymn, Violent men have sought after my life because I have clung to your covenant. For they, an assembly of deceit and a horde of Belial, know not that my stand is maintained by you. So once again, we have the association of violent men as opposed to the those who cling to the covenant they are an assembly of deceit, and they are directly associated with Belial. But, of course, just like Psalm 119 says, those who are the sons of light uh, stand by those that are maintained by God. It goes on and says, And they, teachers of lies and seers of falsehood, have schemed against me a devilish scheme to exchange the Torah engraved on my heart by you for the smooth things which they speak to your people, but you, O God, do despise all of Belial's designs. Now this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9 and 10, when it says, This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the Torah of Yahweh, who say to the seers, See not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, and prophesy deceits. So let's get the gist of that again. According to the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving hymn, they're teachers of lies and seers of falsehood. They have schemed against me a devilish scheme to exchange the Torah, which is engraved on my heart by you, for the smooth things which they speak to your people. Now, what's interesting about this is chelkah, chelkah, is, is the word that's used there, smooth things. It happens to be in that form, the Hebrew word, because actually that word, uh, chalak, means to divide or to portion out. So the reason why it's translated this way is it's flattery or smooth talking in order to actually divide. The purpose of the, of the smooth talking is to actually divide instead of unite. Even though it may have seemed to give the appearance of uniting, it's a smooth talking. For example, car salesmen sometimes smooth talk you in order to divide you from your money, uh, for example. Or the people that call you or used to call you uh, late at night uh, on your telephone and trying to sell you something smooth talk you. But the clear contrast here is between those who keep the Torah and those who are talked into exchanging keeping the Torah for smooth-sounding words. And also, as we said earlier, that their focus seems to be on a new covenant and or a renewed covenant, if you will. And so, before the time of the Messiah, they clearly understand the concept of the Torah being written or engraved on your heart. That's not, as I've said so many times, something new. That's just something true. And the more that we begin to open up and read and understand and learn the hearts of the fathers, 
which would be the hearts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, the more we will see that there's nothing new here. It's only perceived to be new when we read our New Testament because we were never really taught the hearts of the fathers in the Tanakh. So moving on, we have some more fragments, in other words, not entire scrolls, called the Apocryphal Psalms, discovered in Cave 4, and it's identified as 4Q88, and I quote, Rejoice, rejoice, and be glad with gladness. Celebrate your feast and pay your vows, for there is no Belial in your midst. Now, once again, someone's been removed out of the midst of them. And what remains, of course, is the sons of light. This is the constant pattern, not only in Scripture, but I believe clearly understood by the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, quoting Scripture, understanding that according to the way things operate in a field, the tares are removed from the wheat, not the wheat, or the Holy Spirit, if you will, removed out of the tares. And then it goes on to say, Behold, the enemy shall perish, and all the workers of iniquity shall be dispersed. So Belial will be removed from the midst. Now we're going to go through a series of commentaries that are called Pashers. Pashers. The first one we're going to deal with is called the Pasher on Habakkuk. Now, Pasher is a Hebrew word. It's Pesher in Hebrew, it's Pashar in Aramaic. The reason why I say that is because most of the occurrence of this word in Scripture is in the Aramaic, actually, in the book of Daniel. But these fragments and these scrolls and so forth that were find, found on these commentaries or interpretations of Habakkuk is in the Hebrew. Why? Because this is a Hebrew word. It's a pay, a shen, and a resh. And it's translated as interpretation or interpreted. And so that's why you see it many times in the book of Daniel and expressed in words like, and the interpretation thereof is, like when Daniel interprets the Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and so forth, that is a pacer. So once again, we have not only 95% of the Hebrew Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the commentaries that are there, and remember this is first century, real close to the time of Yeshua, perhaps even into and into the times of Yeshua, where we have not only 95% of the biblical text, but the commentaries or interpretations of the biblical text are not in, not mostly in Aramaic or mostly in Greek or Latin, but rather in Hebrew, giving us continuing evidence that the more things we find, the more we dig things out of the ground and find things in caves and more Evidence we get that Hebrew was very much spoken in these times. It would be ludicrous to have a book written in Hebrew and then go to your local bookstore and find all the commentaries in Spanish or Japanese or a language that nobody's speaking. If very few people are speaking in this language, then why are commentaries in this in someone's library in Hebrew? More evidence again we, we get and the more we find that this is not true. So. The Pesha on Habakkuk is basically a quote from certain passages in Habakkuk, and then they give, once again, the interpretation thereof. So our first Pesha, or commentary or interpretation, is on Habakkuk 1, verse 6, which says in our Bibles, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Here is their commentary. It says, Interpreted this concerns the Katim, who are quick and valiant in war, causing many to perish. All the world shall fall under the dominion of the Katim, and the wicked shall not believe in the Torah of God, or in the laws of God. 
Now, we're going to cover in quite a bit of detail a little later this Katim and who they are. I just want you to start to see that already the Katim are not limited to this or that particular geographic region or location, which is the tendency of many of these scholars when they look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is that some believe the Katim are just the Romans, others say they are just the Greeks. I'm going to propose to you that the Katim, based upon the meaning of the word and when they uh, first come on the scene in our Bible, Genesis chapter 10, that they represent, it's not limited to a people of a certain blood lineage. I've been trying to say this for years, and, and I'm still going to keep saying it until someone shoots me dead, that these things are not limited to, to this physical thing or that physical thing, but it's trying to show us when the smoke clears, the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those who follow the commandments of God and his Messiah and his deliverer and those who do not. Plain and simple. And so even the Chaldeans are interpreted by these to be related to the Katim, who are valiant in war, causing many to perish, which we're going to see that a little bit later. But also the main thing concerned with the Katim and the wicked is that they do not believe in the laws of God. These are going to be the kind of identifying characteristics of all of these people who are ostensibly called the sons of darkness from beginning to end. Now, we're going to go back to, I think I made a quick quote from the Damascus document uh, a little while back. This is a document that we will uh, quote quite extensively a little later. It was a doc, it was actually a whole bunch of fragments found in three different caves and has some very interesting interpretations of Scripture, including a new covenant that was to be made in the land of Damascus. Now, that's the reason where we get the word Damascus document from, and I will read more extensively from it later. For now, column 19, line verses 5 and 6, it states, and I quote, But all those who despise the ordinances and the statutes, the evil ones will be repaid their due when God visits the land. So once again, the identification of the evil ones, the wicked, the sons of darkness, and we'll get putting this more together later, are those who despise the ordinance of the st- and the statutes. We're going to clearly define, as what the New Testament defines, as the difference between sons of light and sons of darkness is the difference between those who acknowledge what their God has done for them and they follow him and keep his Torah, his statutes and commandments. As a, and those are the sons of the light. And the sons of darkness, of course, are those who do not. So we go on. In the war scroll later on, it's also going to help us to identify some of the things that are brought up in the beginning. Later on in the war scroll, it's going to say, and I quote, the hand of the might of God in battle so as to bring down all the slain because of unfaithfulness. On the trumpets of ambush they shall write, Mysteries of God to wipe out wickedness. On the trumpets of pursuit, they shall write, God has struck all the sons of darkness. They're out to wipe out wickedness. And we'll see that those are associated with these trumpets that they're going to blow later on when we get uh, to that section. Continuing on in the war scroll, it also says, For they are a wicked congregation All their deeds are in darkness. It is their desire. They have established all their refuge in a lie. Their strength is as smoke that vanishes, and all their vast assembly is as a chaff which blows away. Remember Psalm chapter 1, verse 4. Desolation 
shall not be found. Every creature of greed shall wither quickly away like a flower at harvest time. Now, this, of course, is referring, as I just said, back to Psalm chapter 1, in which it tells us that those who meditate on the Torah of their God shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose fruit shall blossom and leaf shall not wither. But the wicked, in the next verse, or the ungodly, are those who are like... Um, the chaff which the wind bloweth away, their greed because of their greed, they quickly wither away like a flower at harvest time. Now, so far, these have been quotes from uh, the War Scroll itself, and some other quotes and some of the other scrolls and fragments found as well. Let's go to the scriptures here for a little bit as well to identify the sons of gar- darkness. In First Samuel two nine and ten, it says. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail, the adversaries of Yahweh shall to be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them, Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. And we're going to find out later that the purpose of the sons of darkness is to cut off the horn, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But notice the association of wickedness with darkness. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Now that is one Hebrew word here is chatat. Chatat. And I believe it was used specifically here because of its association with wickedness. The root of it, rasha, which is mostly used here, is also a cognate of, of resh ayin ayin, which means to break something into pieces. Now, the whole idea of wickedness in God's eyes, is to destroy the purpose of something. The Father has a design and a purpose for his dietary laws, his Shabbat, his commandments, his his festivals, and so forth. And when you pervert them or corrupt them, you destroy them, you break them into pieces. It's like someone taking something very valuable or a piece of fine pottery and breaking it into pieces. In other words, it's something that we see operating in our everyday life. And we need to take these out of the theological realm and put them back into their brilliant simplicity of the simple things of life. And so this word chatat, even though it's chet, tav, tav, the root chata, it's a cognate of the word chata, which is chet, tet, aleph, which you can see basically sound the same. They are cognates of each other. They are related to each other. The idea of something broken into pieces directly related to sin. Another example we might bring to light in Mishla 2, that is Proverbs 2, 12-14, it says, To deliver you from the way of the evil one, from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. Now that silly word there in the English, froward, is in Hebrew it just means to walk in perverseness, in the perverse things of the wicked, in the perverse things. But clearly, what do those who are evil and in darkness, what do they do? They leave the paths of righteousness. Now, this word here, paths, is auric, which does is the Hebrew word for a path. And it is uprightness, of uprightness. Now, that is yashar in Hebrew. Yashar is a word that we've covered many times on our words mean things. It is a word that Paul uses, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about the bride And he's talking about how he fears for the bride that as the enmity did in the Garden of Eden, 
as Satan beguiled Eve in the garden, that you also, the bride, should be removed from the simplicity that is in the Messiah. That is Yashar, from the straightness and uprightness, is the Hebrew word to, to go. As a matter of fact, we would use it in English to, to say he's a straight guy, or he's walking down the straight and narrow. That, that in Hebrew would be Yashar. It also happens to believe, I believe, there's a couple of uh, translations of Israel. I believe that this happens to be the root of Israel. Uh, the straightness or uprightness of God is what I think uh, should be uh, translated in Israel. And of course, it's only logical that those, according to the scriptures, who walk uprightly, a walk according to the statutes and ordinance commandments of God, will prevail in the end. And that's one of the reasons why the, the text there uses, uh, and, and he prevailed. And some people think that Israel means uh, the, the prevailed of God, or God prevailed. Okay, let's continue on as we are identifying the general term used to describe each one of these characters in the opening column of the war scroll. We will go through the individuals. Right now we're just doing Sons of Darkness. In Proverbs 4, 18 through 20, it's very clear. But the path, that is Oric again, of the just, the Sadiq, is as, they sh- is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. But the way of the wicked is as darkness, they know not at what they stumble. And then he goes on to say, My son, attend to my words, incline your ear unto my sayings. That word incline there, by the way, happens to be the same word that's translated as to stretch out the heavens. So literally in Hebrew, to stretch out the ear means to attend or incline yourself unto my sayings, to stretch out the ear. And so we have this contrast, once again, between the just as a, as the light and the way of the wicked as darkness. I think we could have figured this out already anyway, but I want to make sure this is very clear as particularly we start to take it into the New Testament. And here's a New Testament example right now. Heat Galut 16 verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So obviously the kingdom of the beast and the fifth angel pouring out his vial upon the seat of the beast is also full of darkness. I suppose it would be good for us to close the CD by quoting three of the most well-known verses concerning darkness in the New Testament. Obviously, the epistles of John and the gospel of John is completely jam-packed full of the contrast between light and darkness. It's a constant theme of Yochanan or John, which, as I said earlier, happens to be the writer of the book of the Revelation and its direct connection to the book of Isaiah, which talks about the light and darkness more than any other book in the scriptures. So let's finish with these, even though later, when we talk about the sons of light later on, we're going to go to First Thessalonians chapter 5, which clearly makes a distinction in the latter days with respect to the coming of the Messiah and the birth pangs and so forth between those who are the children of light and those who are of the darkness. But let's go to a couple of verses here, conclude this in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. 26, verse 18. Once again, why are we doing this? Because this is a constant theme of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not the least of which is in the War Scroll. 26, 18 says, To open their eyes, excuse me, let's get 17 for context, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles of whom I now send you, 
to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. So clearly, going from darkness to light is like going from the strength of the power of Hasatan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Remember, that's what this Melchizedek character was sent to do, and inheritance among them who are sanctified by faith that is in me. In 2 Corinthians 6.14 is another well-known example. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Messiah with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? We have a clear contrast of Messiah with Belial, because Belial is one of the central characters of the war scroll, and we will concentrate on him the next time we're together. But I wanted to read one more scripture to you in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So next time we get together, we're going to start to identify these specific characters that are mentioned as the sons of darkness. Then we will talk about the identification of the sons of light that are also all in the first column of the war scroll. Until we see you again, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. See you next time. Shalom. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy, hate being preached to, something missing in your life, you haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio.